You're listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for March 8th, 2020, the second Sunday in Lent. Today's sermon was given by the Reverend Elizabeth Garnsey. It's based on Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4a, and John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Several years ago, I went to a conference on evangelism in Montreal where Dr. Ellen Cherry from Princeton Theological Seminary gave a talk she called Pickles versus Pop-Tarts. And in it, she addressed two commonly held theories of salvation. One of them is considered a participation theory. It's a more Trinitarian notion of how God draws us in and brings us into our salvation in which the person being saved is invited into the participation of the very life of God with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This this theory envisions a slow God. Like pickles, our salvation takes place over time as a process, as God transforms us. We might say we are saved again and again throughout our lives. The second theology is commonly called the atonement theory of salvation which is more cross, maybe more Christocentric than Trinitarian. And it rests upon the idea of substitution, the substitution of Christ's death for the death sinners deserve. This way envisions a fast God, like Pop-Tarts. We are justified by God and sanctified just once and for all. If anyone ever asks you, when were you saved? You can be sure that they're coming from that theological place. Both of these ideas can be backed up with scripture references, and both are part of long Christian traditions. One has become more associated with Catholic teaching, and the other is more aligned with Protestant teaching. Now, I loved my systematic theology classes as much as any other classes I took during my master's program. Doing doing systematic theology is like a spiritual exercise. There are no right or wrong answers. The trick is to come up with a model that hangs together with coherence and also rings true when put through the filters of scripture and experience. I just got a nod from Justin, so I think I'm okay so far. (laughs) Personally, I've never been a naturally systematic thinker, much to my frustration, and I never could accept not either of these theories wholesale, but I find resonance in elements of both. I suppose that's why I'm drawn to the Anglo-Catholic tradition, Queen Elizabeth I's middle way that kept Catholics and Protestants together through the Reformation. In modern parlance, I'm like a character in a New Yorker cartoon that came out in the heyday of Brooklyn's hipster gentrification. In the cartoon, a guy says to the hot dog vendor, I want something fast, hot, and artisanal. I want to see results now from something that should take a long time. I know I'm a long way from being fully transformed in terms of my life imitating the life of Jesus, but I also experience no anxiety that God doesn't love me or that I'm not God's child now and for all eternity, no matter how many ways I screw up. I guess you could call me a pickled Pop-Tart. Maybe this is why I'm so drawn to the formal, highly traditional, and reverential nature of our liturgical church. Its seasons and rhythms have something to offer that is in short supply in our culture at large, namely patience. Patience to spend a whole five weeks in a season with no flowers and no alleluias, 
narrowing our focus to self-reflection and amendment of life, patience to listen to the same words, to the same rituals every week at the same time and in the same way. Like a bath, it washes over us and refreshes us. And sometimes it's more satisfying than at other times. And moreover, our tradition has patience with my own slow understanding of faith over time. But even so, all the while, I'm drawn into the mysteries of a living, growing relationship with God in the company of others. Our culture is driven by short attention spans that demand flashes of ever-changing content and, and instant gratification. But this kind of culture does not allow for every person's sensibilities, nor does it lend itself to thoughtfulness or peacefulness or, I would argue, the spaciousness required for a healthy imagination to flourish. The way of love, that is, the way of Jesus, is both a way of being in the here and now and a way of walking, walking a long road, marked in turns by confusion and bewilderment, and at the same time, glimpses of new understanding along the meandering way. The Spanish poet Antonio Machado said, Traveler, there is no road. The road is made by walking. Mikado may have intended his poem to convey a more determine-your-own-destiny kind of message, but I borrow his image to let me imagine that whatever steps we take, there is no false path, because God walks our path with us. Whether we move slowly or quickly or sideways or in circles at times, our path is made by walking, and God walks the path with us. And when we walk with the intention of a seeker, God is able to use our every step to draw us ever more deeply into a relationship of new life. That's what spiritual growth looks like. We move in and out of shadows and light. It is dynamic and ever-maturing even and maybe especially through times when we digress or even regress. Spiritual growth also demands that we shore up our commitment to the path in times of crisis, such as in the midst of this coronavirus outbreak, when we need more than ever to know that God is with us and we need not let fear stop us in our tracks. The wisdom and common sense of changing our habits, such as hugs and handshakes, thus minimizing risk to ourselves and one another, is different than fear. Wisdom in this sense calls for a mere detour as we adapt to new ways, whereas fear would shut us down and drive us into cowering isolation. We have to pray daily to recognize the difference between wisdom and fear in the way we choose to respond to a crisis, whatever it may be. The mystics say great love or great loss are the surest path to enlightenment. Our cataclysms and sufferings become our greatest teachers after they have been our greatest disruptors. It is impossible to understand where suffering is taking us while we're in the midst of it. But when we are already on the road with God, when the sufferings and cataclysms strike, we can know that God is using everything on our path to take us where we need to go, namely deeper into levels of spiritual awareness. We make the path by walking. 
Today we encounter Abram, who is confronted by God and issued a radical command to up and leave his father's house and his tradition and his homeland and go to a land that God would show him. God promises Abram will be the father of a great nation. And in that iconic Hebrew phrase, Abram will be blessed to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. His blessing is not an end in itself. It is for others. Abraham will find out that it is not an easy thing to carry the blessing of God into the world. But Abram doesn't know that yet. He just hears the voice of God speaking to him. There is no conversation, no planning, no second thoughts. And Abram's response is remarkable. He just goes. He sets out walking with no idea where he's going. In rabbinic commentary on this passage, God's command to Abram to go forth is sometimes interpreted as go to yourself, as in go find yourself. God is calling Abram to separate himself from all the things he's born into, his father's house, his family's religion, his familiar geography, and go forth to forge a new path for himself. God promises to show Abram the steps and to take him into a place of new life, both literally and spiritually. This invitation to go forth from childhood and go to yourself into maturity to find out who we are called to become as children of God is a path God wants all of us to take eventually. But most of us are not so ready and willing as Abraham, even well into adulthood. There's a lot of clinging, a lot of going and turning back, a lot of fits and false starts. But when we trust God to lead us at least one step by one step at a time, over time we forge a path into greater spiritual maturity. Abram is a fast-track guy who ends up on a slow road, but he assuredly experienced God through his ready willingness to jump in with both feet. And then in John, we get the first appearance of Nicodemus, who will appear two more times in the Gospel in a story of his gradual enlightenment. In this first scene of his slowly unfolding story, Nicodemus is seriously interested in Jesus, but he hopes his friends won't find out about it. So he comes to Jesus at night, in secret. Nicodemus has stature in the community, and he breaks the ice with Jesus by flattering him. Rabbi, we all see that you are a teacher who has come from God. But in Jesus' response, the conversation takes a strange and mystical turn. Jesus gives Nicodemus an unsettling riddle about being born from above or born again to address him where he is the most stuck, in his literalist way of thinking that does not allow for spiritual perception. Nicodemus arrived in the dark, and he leaves in the dark, but a glimmer of light has seeped in, and Nicodemus is on his way down a new path with no idea where it will take him. At this moment, Jesus and his words seem so at odds with his entire way of thinking and out of sync with his life as it is, yet he finds himself strangely drawn. He will have to keep walking. It will take the whole of John's gospel narrative to see Nicodemus fully come into the light of Christ, but he will get there. You might say we have before us a Pop-Tart in Abram 
a ready convert and a pickle in Nicodemus, a seeker who needs more time. I, for one, am glad there are so many ways to God because we simply do not all travel at the same speed or in the same way. For our part, what we have to do is make our road, take the steps, and start walking. We have to take our steps and even our missteps, either boldly like Abram or haltingly like Nicodemus under the proverbial cover of night. The steps you take are never taken alone because God meets us wherever we are and walks with us fast or slow or roundabout. The whole of the way, God walks with us. Amen. You can find more sermons on our website at www.stmarksnewcanon.org.